including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day long. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and laid down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him a second time and said, get up and eat some more. Or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Amen. You may be seated. Our subject this afternoon comes out of the plea, the cry of Elijah in verse 4. As he sits under the juniper tree, says verse 4, he prays that he might die. Then he cries out in his own way, Lord, I've had enough. Or as I call this sermon, Lord, I can't take it. This is enough for me. I just want to die for I am no better or any more than my ancestors who've already died. It's not an abnormal title. In fact, I would suggest and probably argue the point that there have been many times in which many of us have come to that very same conclusion after either remaining in a consistent wrestling with an issue that appears to be turning our world upside down or having been ushered into a situation unexpectedly that we now feel ill-prepared to persevere through. We come to a point after much wrestling and much frustration that we throw up our hands and just cry out, Lord, I cannot take any more of this. And we've even probably, if we're honest with ourselves, been out of space from time to time. We may not admit it publicly, and I'm not asking you to do that this afternoon, but internally, let's just be honest with ourselves, I was this morning at 8 and I'll do it with you. There have been times when I kind of wish I would just die because I'm just frustrated and I'm tired of even fighting the same battle over and over again. So frustrated that it looks I'm almost a replica of Elijah. I'm exhausted of strength. I'm frustrated on the journey. It's as if my prayers are not being answered or as if God has shut up the throne and as if God knows my name and decided for whatever reason not to answer my prayer. I've even gone as far as saying, Lord, if you just let me know you do hear me, 
I'd be happy at that. But there have been times when I've heard nothing from heaven and there was still the expectation that I would hold on to God's unchanging hand. Elijah now is in this state, but he didn't get there just overnight. Remember, Jezebel is a behind-the-scenes manipulator. She's the real king of Israel. Although she is not the king by way of official, her husband Ahab is. But I told you before, Ahab is a puppeteer king. He does whatever Jezebel tells him to do. You can find out this more when you get to chapter 20, for we see the real manhood of Ahab when Naboth would not give him his vineyard instead of being a man to negotiate with Naboth. He goes back and cries to Jezebel like a little child, and Jezebel tells him, you need to man up and be a real man. And the story goes on that he tries to get it, he doesn't. So Jezebel is the one that, that sends out the edict. The best thing you can do is kill Naboth if you want to get what you want. Be careful of advice necessary to get what you want because that might lead you down the wrong road, which could be destructive behavior. And then when you get it, you can't live with it comfortably because you're always looking over your shoulder wondering if anybody actually found out how you got it. So Ahab now reports back home. He knows that he has to go back and tell the real king what's really going on. Verse 1 and 2 tells us that he goes back and begins to share with Jezebel all the things that Elijah has done. She's listening attentively because she now knows the fact that Ahab returns not with good news, but with bad news. That's not good news at all. She knows that as Ahab begins to unfold the saga that her whole perspective about who this prophet is, is beginning to change. Ahab, I quote, says, the writer says that he tells her everything that Elijah had done. A, Elijah is responsible for the three-year drought. B, Elijah is responsible for beating and even killing the 450 prophets at Mount Carmel. See, Elijah is responsible for publicly revealing that Baal is not the real God. And D, Elijah is persuading many who once followed Baal now to follow Yahweh. Now Jezebel knows after hearing this that she can't approach Elijah as her mind normally would. She's no slouch. She's a strategic person. And she probably learned how to handle her enemies from her father, who was likewise a very military-minded individual as well. So she knows, though, that she just can't roll up and start swinging on Elijah because Elijah has made clear that I can win a battle and never lift a hand. When you go back to Mount Carmel, Elijah is victorious because he didn't profit. He simply looked unto the hills from which came his help and called on the name of the Lord, and God answered his prayer. Sometimes you don't have to physically fight a person. You don't even have to physically respond. Just sit there and cry out to God in your own way, Lord, I don't have to fight this battle because I heard in the word of God that the battle is not mine, but the battle is the Lord. So Jezebel knows that I can't just go up and physically 
attack Elijah because it's already been proven. He beat all 450 of my prophets and he never lifted a hand. So she has to rethink how her strategy would be, how she would handle the kind of person that you can't beat physically. So what's the next best thing that she decides to do? She enters into what I call verbal psychological warfare on Elijah. She sends a message to him and she doesn't show up personally because I think Jezebel fears that if I show up personally, I'm going to be angry when I see Elijah and when I see Elijah, I will lose my composure and start trying to be physical only to have Elijah one more time not retaliate but lift up his eyes unto the God of his glory and begin again to call on his name. Jezebel's name is quite interesting in its meaning. It means, where is my prince Baal? Her name highly suggests that whatever she does, her being a patron of the Baal cult, that when she called on that name, something magnificent was going to happen on her behalf. But she's troubled now. She's troubled because when the prophets of Baal called out on the name of Baal at Mount Carmel, nothing happened. Her name as a question is pitched against the meaning of Elijah's name, which is Yahweh is my God. So now instead of assaulting, which she'll do, but she has to first wrestle with her own verbal psychological warfare. Do I launch an attack? Merely by using words because Yahweh is my God has already defeated Baal who is my God. So what do I do? So she opts to, to verbalize an assault against Elijah by sending a messenger. If she came personally, that might ignite some kind of physical conflict of violence which she doesn't want. So she sends a messenger, and the messenger said, look at 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. If by this time tomorrow, may the gods kill me if I have not done to you what you have done to my prophets, and that is to kill them, to make them dead. Now here it is. Every point and transition in this message, I'm going to give it to you by the use of the alphabet W. That's to help you understand better how to follow me in the text. So in verse 1 and 2, here is Jezebel's verbal assault. If I can't beat you physically, I will throw words at you verbally by way of a threat to make you mentally, here's the first one, feel worthless. Now watch it because some people are quite interesting they will not confront you or say to you in your face what they really think about you. They don't have the guts, and there's another word I wish I could use, but I can't because it wouldn't be fitting in this church context. But if we were in the street, I'd tell you something else a little different. But they can't, give, they can't say to you what they really need to say because they just don't have it. They don't have in them what they ought to do. So they'd rather spread what they want to say to you through someone else. That's the reason why she sends a messenger. In church, we call that gossip. They'd rather plant a seed 
in someone's mind that they know will carry the message. And when they carry the message from one person to the next and to the next, they figure eventually it's going to get to who I designed for it to be at. But the idea is to make one Elijah feel worthless. And sometimes when people can't handle you, they can't handle your progress. They can't handle your boldness. They can't handle your stance. They can't handle your statue in God. They can't handle your strength. They can't handle your intellect. They can't handle your beauty. They can't handle your endurance. They can't handle your power. They can't handle your authority. They can't handle the word on the inside of you. So they try to make you feel worthless that you're not all that you say that you are. But how many of you know that I am who I am because I belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And hey, I can't help it. Don't hate me. Hate the game. Don't hate the player. But I can't help it because God made me who I am. God gave me this blessedness. God gave me this favor. God gave me this anointing. God gave me this strength. God gave me this tenacity. And I didn't just get it. It didn't just drop out of the sky. But I had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I had to go through some trials sometimes. I've been up and I've been down. I've been pushed out and I've been dragged on the ground. But I found strength in the name of the Lord. And you could try to make me feel worthless all you want. But I realize greater is he that's on the inside of me than he that is in the world. Don't never let anybody mentally attack you and try to make you feel like you are worthless. You got to look at him and say, I'm more than a conqueror through Christ who lives on the inside of me. And you may not think that I'm worth something, but I belong to a God who tells me every day that I'm worth something because I'm alive and well. And I'm going to let everybody know this is the day that the Lord has made. And I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it don't let anybody make you feel worthless and Elijah should have known better when he thought about what God has done for him and listen he should have been shouting still on the past victory that he got at Mount Carmel and I got a question Elijah if you did not run away from 450 prophets why are you running away from Jezebel who's just one person and if her one little threat throws you into that kind of tantrum that might suggest to me you might not be as deeply anchored in God as you think that you are don't let anybody think that you're worthless but most importantly don't you think that you're worthless and read the Bible and it says that Jezebel was trying to make Elijah feel worthless by saying that by this time tomorrow, your life is going to be worthless because you're going to be just like the prophets you killed at Mount Carmel. You're going to be dead. Secondly, don't do like Elijah did. And if you do, there's a remedy to doing this. Because she launched this psychological warfare mentally on Elijah to make him feel worthless, Elijah permitted Jezebel's worthless assertion to cause him, here's the second W, to withdraw from life. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says that when Elijah heard this, 
he was afraid and he ran along with his servant to a place called Beersheba. Now here's what's interesting about Beersheba, the naming of the place, it's a town kind of at a great distance from Jerusalem slash Judah, but it's further enough out of town where Elijah would have been out of the reach of Jezebel's military army. There's no way she would have went that far because it would have been beyond the boundaries to which she would normally operate. But he stops at Beersheba, and Beersheba means well of oath. It's called a well of oath because in Genesis 21, Abraham and Abimelech had a difference between the two of them, and it was that Abimelech was claiming that the well dug there, he dug it, and Abraham was claiming that he dug it. And so to settle their difference, they made an oath one to another that Abraham would be credited with the digging of the well. Elijah was in a spot where if he was in that much fear and he was under that much pressure that he should have stopped where he stopped his servant and maybe renewed his oath to God. If Jezebel made an oath to kill Elijah, now Elijah might want to renew his oath back to God to let God know, Lord, I am in this isolated spot, and hear me clearly, it's okay to get fearful sometimes because I understand life can do that to you. When it catches you off guard and you were unprepared for that experience, it can make you feel a little troubled sometimes. It can make you feel weak and make you feel tired. And listen to me, if you're going to run away and be in isolation, make sure that when you run away and be in isolation, you take that time to renew yourself. You take that, nine, that time to refresh yourself and to recommit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, you all know, just like I know, that after you've been laboring for six long days, some of us work six days a week, when you get to church on Sunday, you're looking for some refreshment. You're looking for some restoration. You're looking for your strength to be renewed. And I'm simply saying, if you're going to work all week and you're going to plan that if I can just get to church on Sunday, in the atmosphere of the church, something has got to happen to renew my strength and to restore in me the strength to run on to see what the end's going to be. And if you're going to be in isolation, make up your mind that I'm not going to allow my situation to kill me in isolation, but instead it's going to renew my strength and I've got to wait on the Lord and be of good courage. Now, some scholars say that Elijah is on the run because his courage has been reduced and his strength, obviously in the text, has been diluted. And he now feels as if God has abandoned him. He might be saying, Lord, you were with me at Mount Carmel, and yet you let Jezebel's threat move me to a point where I'm on the run. Well, if you think about it, God didn't do that. You did that yourself. I came to Mount Carmel because you called on my name. If you hear Jezebel's threat, don't turn and run. Turn back and call on my name one more time. 
That's all you got to do. If you start running, then that's going to make the enemy think that the, many, that the enemy has already won the battle. And whenever you're running, your back is towards your enemy, and that makes you a moving target for defeat. So the Bible says that Elijah ran and he stopped at Beersheba, left his servant there. He could have actually renewed his oath with God, but he didn't, says the text. He went further into the wilderness, a, tra a day's travel, a day's journey. And he finds a juniper tree. And he sits down under this juniper tree. And when he sits down, look at what verse 4 says. He says to himself, that he wants to die. And he looks to God and said, Lord, I can't take it any longer. Take my life, for my life is no better than my ancestors. Jezebel has attempted to make him feel worthless. Elijah has allowed her to influence his thinking by withdrawing himself Here's my third W. But now we know that Elijah is weary and weak on the journey. And whenever you get weary and weak, you've got to get a hold of Psalm 27, verse 14. You've got to dig yourself into the word of God and remember that life will indeed deplete you of your strength. Some people can exhaust you of your strength. Some situations can exhaust you of your strength. Now, in defense of Elijah, maybe he's running. I don't think this is true. I'm just trying to help him out. Maybe he's running because he doesn't want to deal with what Jezebel is and what she said. I don't think so. I think he's running because verse 3 says he's scared. He's flat out scared because he's never had this kind of confrontation. Read Elijah's journey from chapter 16 to chapter 19. He's never had this kind of problem. In fact, he's been nothing but victorious. In his weariness and his weakness is where God is going to show him how God takes care of you when life depletes you. So what does he do? Verse 5, 6, and 7 tells us that when Elijah sits under the juniper tree and decides that he wants to die and calls out to God that I want you to kill me and take my life and don't be too critical of Elijah because we've been there where we said we weren't going to say anything else about God. We won't come into church anymore because it ain't working. We ain't praying anymore because it seems like heaven has shut its doors. We're not reading the word anymore because it doesn't work for me. We've had our moments when we have decided we were going to maybe not physically die, but kill our spiritual walk with God. So we decided to supplement something for God. We decided to replace God with something or someone else, only to discover that it doesn't do any better. It makes life even more difficult. And weariness and weakness is a part of the journey. You are never going to grow unless you recognize what it means to not have strength. You are never going to know what it means to be up 
until sometimes you find yourself down. You never know what freedom means until that freedom it robs you in a struggle. You'll never know what it means to be victorious unless you're in a state where you might lose. And so you have to understand that, watch this, in the words of Fantasia, sometimes you have to lose. I know I got some R&B folk up in here. You're going to act like y'all know. Y'all know Fantasia. Sometimes you got to lose in order to win. And look what happened. Jesus lost, quote unquote, at Calvary on Friday. But he had to do that so that he could win victory for us on Sunday morning. I wish I had a church that understood what it means for your Savior to go up to Golgotha on a Friday, weary and weak, but early on Sunday morning, stood up and declared that all power is given unto me. And because he lives in my weariness and in my weakness, I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I know who holds the future. And now I know that life is worth living just because he lives. I wish I had some witnesses up in this house who've been in the valley of the shadow of death, who've walked through the fire of trouble, who've had to wrestle your way through disappointment. And yet here you are today because God has renewed your strength. Says the psalmist, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. You might be sitting under your juniper tree right now, but get those words of death out of your mouth and put those words of renewal in your mouth. Lord, renew my strength. And Isaiah says that they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I think it's interesting that Isaiah says... We're going to mount up on wings like an eagle. He's weary and he's weak and God comes to his rescue. Look at verse 5 and 6 and 7. It says that as Elijah was under that tree, he fell asleep. And God sent an angel and an angel said unto him the first time, wake up, you need to eat. And when he wakes up, he finds some baked bread and a jar of water at his head. And Elijah has to ask himself the question, how did this get here? Where I am out here all by myself. Because when you're all by yourself, that's when God does supernatural stuff. When you think you're lonely, when you think you're all alone, he sits down with you. And puts his arms around you and reassures you that weeping might endure for the night. But I want you to know joy is coming in the morning. Elijah wakes and eats and he drinks. I know he thinks it's a dream, but that's what God does. In that moment which you're isolated alone all by yourself, you get into a sleep mode. God can pay a visit to you to give you an answer to prayer. This is what I'm going to do. If you hold on, says Grandmama, to God's unchanging hand, this is what I'm going to do for you. He goes back to sleep, 
And the angel comes back a second time, wakes him up, and says, get up and eat. You need this food for your body because the journey is too much for you. You can't fight Jezebel all by yourself. You can't handle life all by yourself. You can't handle them wayward co-workers all by yourself and that strange boss all by yourself and them atheistic neighbors all by yourself and them crazy relatives all by you. You can't handle them folk all by yourself. You need my strength to enable you to handle their presence when they're in front of you. You know how it is, you go in that office, come tomorrow, and you got to see that same, you just handled them two days ago on Friday. You got to go back and see that same face all over again. And you say, Lord, you got a sense of humor because you keep leaving me in this situation, and I don't know why you need to either move me or that person. And God said, we ain't doing either one. You're going to stay right here and grow in the midst of this matter because I'm training you that you are more than the conqueror. Elijah, the journey is long. He was telling Elijah inadvertently, man, you ain't seen nothing. You got, a long, you got another 40 days to go. Read the text. Verse 7 tells us that he tells Elijah in that second time, you need to, read, you need to eat and you need to drink. And the Bible says in verse 8 that Elijah was given strength that enabled him to make another journey, 40 days and 40 nights that he might get to the mountain of God. Now the question is, after Elijah cries out, Lord, take my life because I can't handle this and I'm tired of it. And your question might be, Lord, why didn't you take my life when I asked you to? Here's the reason why, twofold and I'm done. Here's another W. God says to Elijah, you're not going to die now. It's not your time because I need you to be my, here it is, witness to some folk who are going to need to know your story. Lord have mercy. See, somebody needs to know your story. And the reason why God doesn't move some relatives away, don't move some co-workers away, don't move some folk out of our path is because God is saying, I want you to tell your story and I want you to tell them how I made a way for you because when you cried out to me, Lord, take my life, I didn't take it. That's why you here this morning in church celebrating that God gave me life one more time and enabled me to testify if it had not been for the Lord on my side. I realize that something probably could have happened, but I'm shouting this morning because what should have wasn't because God gave me another chance. Didn't do what I asked him to do. And some of us ought to be shouting that God doesn't do everything you ask him to do. Thank you, Lord, for not taking my life because you gave me another chance to see your goodness and your mercy one more time because God says you're going to be my witness and I'm going to use you to bring somebody else into the kingdom of God hallelujah but that's not the only reason here's another reason God says I don't want you to be my witness but you you can't die you can't quit 
you can't give up right now because you are a, here's the last one, a warrior. And warriors don't quit. Warriors don't give up. Warriors recognize that they might be wounded in the battle, but they keep on fighting. They may have to drag and be lame, but they keep on fighting. They fight until the end because they realize when you are a warrior, there's no giving up in you. There's no throwing in the towel in you. There's no lying down in you. There's no turning back in you because on the inside of you lives a God who's not only more than a conqueror, but he's an overcomer. And because God is an overcomer, I can't help but overcome every situation that I I am a part of because I'm a warrior. Now here's the final thing I want to tell you. Some of you might be sitting under the juniper tree right now and you think that it's a prison. You think that God has incarcerated you into defeat. No, where you are is a cocoon. And if you know what a cocoon is, it's there where the butterfly is made. And I want to argue this morning and then I'm done. Maybe God's got you where he is under this juniper tree in this cocoon mode because God is trying to help you understand I'm developing your wings. See, the butterfly amazingly eventually breaks out of that cocoon, but he's, he's got to keep working the wings. Some of y'all ain't worked your wings in so long that God knows in order for you to work them, I got to put you in a circumstance where you work your wings. Okay, let me break it down for you. Some of you ain't prayed in so long. God said, I'll put you in a prayer posture where you got to work your prayer wings. Some of you ain't read the word so long. You just bypass it every day. I'll put you in a posture where you got to work your word reading wings. Some of you ain't shouted in so long and celebrated the goodness of God that I'll posture where you got to celebrate and work your shouting wings. And you know you growing up in God. You know you getting big in God when you can shout for somebody else. When you recognize that somebody else is breaking out of their cocoon and you see them breaking out. You recognize that they're getting out under that juniper tree and you see them getting out. You start shouting for them. You tell them, baby, this ain't me. I'm not shouting about me. I'm shouting because you finally coming out. You finally overcoming. You're becoming more than a conqueror. You are victorious. I'm shouting because I'm glad that God is showing you and showing me that I'm breaking out. And you are where you are because God is trying to tell you, I want you to break out and not break down. But break out from where you are. And I did it this way because I knew you would turn your eyes to the hills from whence came your help when I put your back against the wall. And he tells Elijah, I got you where I want you right now for whatever reason, because Elijah, the vision that I have for you is far bigger than what you saw at Mount Carmel. And maybe God is trying to tell some of you that that victory I gave you the other day which you still should be shouting on. I'm going to let whoever and whatever throw a threat at you because I want you 
to measure how deep your roots are in me. And maybe you're in that space right now. You're wondering, Lord, how long? Don't ask how long. Just ask God how much strength you got to give me so that I can persevere in this space. I can't take it, God. I can't handle it any longer. And God says, yes, you can. Yes, you can. And he made a tremendous mistake when he said, I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. And God says, you don't want me to call your ancestor robe, do you? And tell you what they've gone through. Do you want me to actually tell you that? And yes, they had their moments where they probably wanted to die, but because they persevered, you are here right now. I wish I had somebody who understood historically that if it hadn't have been for a Maggie Walker and if it hadn't have been for a Harriet Tubman and if it hadn't have been for an Ida B. Wells and if it hadn't have been for a Frederick Douglass and if it hadn't have been for a Henry Garnett and if it hadn't have been for Gabriel Brosa, we wouldn't be where we are right now. Sure, they wanted to quit. They sat under their juniper tree, I'm sure, many days. Lord, take my life. But there was a bigger prize in the future. And that's what God's trying to tell us. There's something bigger ahead than you and I right now. This moment is just a temporal stepping stone to something broader. And that's what God's trying to tell us in this house. I want to die. Can I, can I, can I be transparent with you for a moment then we're going to go home I told the Lord I wanted to get out of this place yeah yeah yeah. I said Lord there's no growth people don't want to grow why do you want me to keep preaching in a space where don't nobody want to grow they don't want to work and God made it clear to me first of all you ain't going nowhere unless I send you someplace else now I'm mad, I'm mad, hold on, I'm mad at God about this, wait a minute, hold on. I'm mad. What you mean I ain't going nowhere? Remember God, I'm getting older and you're not. Your age stays the same all the time, but mine is getting older. And God says, remember who holds your age. Remember who holds your life. And God says, you right where I want you at. And you have who I want you to have. Man, that broke my heart. What do you mean I got? Have you looked in my sanctuary lately, Lord, on Sunday morning? Yep, I know exactly who's there. But then God reminded me of something. Have you noticed in the Old Testament, I never had a lot of people, I had a remnant. Y'all didn't catch that. I said, but Lord, I know some folk who done some bad stuff. I mean some bad stuff. And you just let their church blow up. And God says, there you go again. Mind your business. I place you at 10185 Zion. You take care of what's on Zion Drive. And I'll handle all the other stuff. I know what's going on. But I got a remnant. 
And then I got to thinking, man, some of those people in my remnant had been with me since day one. Since the first Sunday in January, 1999, when I stood in that pulpit as the pastor. They've been hanging out with me since then, and they could have left and went somewhere else. But God says, look out and identify. they still there because you are dropping seeds, and you may not understand this, but you may not get a big congregation. Are you in it for the big congregation, or are you in it for the assignment? I said, Lord, I'm done. I'm in it for the assignment. And if it means I got to preach to a few, I'll keep on preaching to a few until you make a change in the situation. Slap five somebody and tell them, I'm here because I can't quit. I can't let nothing make me quit because God is a God who will continue to bless as long as I'm obedient. So the Lord told me, I had to go back and read Jeremiah. And it dawned on me. In all the years that Jeremiah preached, we don't have one conversion of anyone in Jeremiah's ministry. He preached all those years. In fact, he preached against the tide. And Jeremiah became so frustrated that as Elijah, he fell into a mode of depression. And he tells the Lord because he ends up being incarcerated for his preaching and rejected by his family. He tells the Lord, you know what? Because I'm in this space, I'm done. I'm not preaching anymore. I'm not calling on your name anymore. I'm throwing in my prophetic mantle. I'm turning in my ordination papers. I'm giving up my license. I'm telling everybody I'm through with preaching. But then Jeremiah 23 says, in his moment to say that he's through, he says the word is like fire. Shut up in my bones. And I said I wasn't going to talk about him, but I can't help it. And under your juniper tree, I know you want to throw in the towel. Been there and done that. Got the scars on my back to show you. But don't throw in the towel yet. Be not dismayed. Whatever the time, God will take care of you beneath his wings where that glorious love abides God will 
take care of you. Come on, let's stand to our feet.